0: Well, good morning, First Family. It's good to see you again. And I'm excited this week and thrilled to bring to you the final message in our series in Mark, Son of God, Servant of Man. This is message number 40, and we're going to be looking at another of the realities of the resurrection. As you know, Mark 16 deals with the resurrection. And so we're going to bring to you the fourth reality of the resurrection. But before we do that... I want to examine and help you understand a phrase that's in your Bibles at least most of them. It's between Mark 16:8 and 16:9. So when you turn to Mark 16 and notice this phrase between these two verses, it's in brackets and it simply says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16:9 through 20. And when you see that, maybe you're wondering, well Todd, is this reality you're going to bring to us actually just a ruse? I mean, Is this note saying that what we're about to read isn't supposed to be in the Bible? Is this actually reliable? What's going on with this simple notation that this is not in some of the manuscripts? Well, I want to take a little bit of time this morning and just kind of unpack for you why we can trust this and what this note means before I kind of unpack for you the fourth reality. So to do that, let me just talk to you a bit about the science of textual criticism. Uh, That's this task uh, of, of examining copies of manuscripts and looking at their variants to see what the original must have been. And so all kinds of literature are involved in textual criticism, not just the Bible. And it's not that we're criticizing the Bible. It simply means we're examining the many, many copies of the New Testament in this case to determine and help us understand what was actually in the original. And so this portion of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, has been debated because of some variance in its manuscripts. Let me start at the beginning and explain this to you. When it comes to textual criticism, there are four kinds of manuscripts that are looked at when it comes to the New Testament, okay? And I'll list these for you so you can see these. There's uncials, there's minuscules, there's lectionaries, and there's papyri. And there's many in each of these categories, Uh, For instance, uncials and minuscules refer to the kinds of lettering used. Lectionaries would be the scriptures that were read daily in the assemblies and in families. papyrus, the material it was written on. So you find either full or total, excuse me, either full or partial copies of the New Testament in all four of these categories. And all total, you have over 5,800 copies of the manuscripts handwritten in full or in part, of the New Testament. That's an incredible amount of copies of the New Testament. Now, let me give you a baseline for seeing how incredible that is. The next book that has the most amount of copies is Homer's Iliad. It's a book of antiquity, well-known. It has a little over 600 copies, and people attest to its historicity, its reliability. The Bible, the New Testament specifically, has over 5,800 copies. That's incredible. In fact, that's more than any other book of of antiquity. So I want to say to you, first of all, you can trust your Bible. It's reliable, trustworthy, dependable. Now, within textual criticism, there is this simple term known as a textual variant. And that's when a letter or a word uh, has been changed or perhaps something's been added or omitted. It just simply is what the scholars do when they uh, examine the many copies. They, they look at the variance among them. And did you know that in the New Testament, in over 5,800 manuscript copies, less than 1% of those copies contain textual variants, And not a single significant doctrine is affected by a textual variant. So you combine all this together and you you can begin to see that the the Bible is incredibly reliable, trustworthy, accurate. And so what we're dealing with here when we look at Mark 16 is really not a, a, a confidence issue. We're just simply looking at copying issues. And even when there are textual variants, that doesn't necessarily equate to textual contradiction, all right? So just some... Information about the science of textual criticism to help us lay groundwork for what we're about to see. But yes, this is a debated portion, but it affects no significant doctrine. And it's not really about confidence, more about copying issues. Now, when it comes to this specific portion, here's the two views that, that people kind of, uh, where they kind of land, all right? And it's not hard to figure out. Some believe that this was original to Mark, and some believe it wasn't original to Mark. These are the simple two views here. Those who believe this portion is not original to Mark or not included in his original gospel cite two reasons. That is missing from some of the earliest manuscripts. Namely, there's two 4th century manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and, and they say they're not in there. And so that's a heavy weight of evidence. Those are trustworthy, reliable manuscripts. And so um, that brings some weight to the table. And they also see the last 12 verses as very non-Markan In both its style and words. Those, however, who see that this is original to Mark and thus included, they would cite that though it's not in the earliest manuscripts, only two of them, of course, they would say that it's in 99% of all the other manuscripts. And they even go on to show that though it's not included in earliest ones originally, that it is quoted and mentioned as early as the second century in different commentaries and by different church fathers. They'd also disagree that it's non-Markan. They say that it's very consistent with Markan style in this way. They say that what you find in the previous portions of Mark are similar to what you find in this portion. Let me explain a little more further. further. Those who think it's not original to Mark would say that there are 17 new words in the final 12 verses of Mark that are not in the previous portions of Mark. And they cite that as a reason it's kind of non-Markan. But those who say this is original to Mark, they examined the 12 verses before the final 12 verses. And you know what they found? 17 new words. And so they would say that in the final 24 verses of Mark, yes, there are new words in both sections. And so what you have here really are just two positions and they debate and they go back and forth. Is this portion original to Mark? Did he write it? Or was it added perhaps by a scribe? Did an apostle later write it? And so I personally think they're not dealing with inspiration issues as much as they may be inclusion issues. Who wrote this and should it be included as original to Mark? Now, I don't have an opinion on who wrote it personally. Uh, perhaps Mark did. Or perhaps it got destroyed or lost later. Uh, Maybe he didn't. Maybe he was martyred before he finished his gospel. There's all kinds of theories out there. Uh, Maybe an apostle wrote it and added it later. Who knows? I do think we can say this assuredly, though. uh, The external and internal evidence of this for many centuries, as well as the fact that no substantial or significant doctrine is contradicted, I think it warrants its inclusion. It counts as very trustworthy, and I think what the translators have done for centuries is very wise. They simply insert this note right before verse 9 so that you can uh, grapple with it and investigate. And I love the honesty and the, the transparency of those who translate this. So that's what's going on here. Whether or not Mark wrote it or not does not affect or change the fact that what we have here, I believe, is the truth from the Lord. And the overwhelming evidence is we can trust the Bible in front of us. So knowing that we can trust this, knowing that we can stand on this, let's read now about the fourth reality from Mark 16. Before we do, here's the review of the first three. The first three realities we've seen last week from Mark 16, 1 through 8. Christ is alive, God's not done, and we are in awe. Here's the fourth one. The mission matters most. We're going to see this emerge from these final 12 verses, And we're going to read them in two groupings, the first six and talk about it for a bit, and then the final six and talk about those for a bit, and then we'll wrap things up. So let's dig in, can we? Mark 16, verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Would you underline the phrase, they would not believe it? Just kind of mark that mentally, would you? Verse 12 After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Here, the author's referencing uh, the Emmaus Road appearance. It's mentioned in Luke 24 in greater detail. And by the way, the phrase in another form is not a reference to modalism at all. It's simply saying that Christ appeared in different fashion physically than he was before the crucifixion and resurrection. Luke 24, again, gives much more detail. They walked together, their eyes were closed, but once they sat down to eat, their eyes were opened by the Lord, and then the Lord disappeared They went back, of course, and told the disciples this. This is where Mark picks it back up now, verse 13. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Underline this phrase again, second time that it's mentioned here. Verse 14 says that afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves. And there's an emphatic, intensive word there. Meaning that uh, he had been given visible appearances to many people who were reporting back. But now he goes right to the disciples, these 11. And he appears to them in person as they were reclining at table. And he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. He corrects them. And this word rebuke here is a pretty stern word. He calls them on the carpet for not just not believing the reports, but also for kind of settling into this kind of posture, for remaining in this unbelief. Yes, he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen again circle that excuse me underline that simple phrase in verse 15 uh, verse 14 they had not believed and you find that mark three times in these first six verses mentions the phrase they did not believe and what is it that they did not believe watch this very carefully church they did not believe eyewitness reports see understand something here And you can see this in the mention of the word appearance or seen several times. In fact, look at verse 9. You see the word appeared? You should circle that. Look at verse 11, the word seen. Then the word appeared in verse 12. The word appeared in verse 14. The word saw in verse 14. These uh, were eyewitnesses. They They weren't coming back saying the tomb is empty. They were coming back and saying we saw Jesus. And so it was in the face of, Eyewitness sightings that the disciples were saying, we don't believe you. And so what you find in these first six verses is a very simple statement that sums it up. Jesus is saying to these disciples, stop doubting the obvious. And it's obvious because they weren't just reporting what they had been told. This is not secondhand information. It's not just an empty tomb. They're reporting what they had actually seen, who they actually saw, Jesus, And so they're rebuked, they're corrected. Stop doubting the obvious. On the heels of that, we pick up the final six verses. And Mark moves quickly to the end of his 40-day appearance and goes right to this moment of the Great Commission before his ascension. And here's how he describes it, verse 15. And he said to them, speaking of Jesus, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven And he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So on the heels of making sure they knew that they were to stop doubting the obvious, here's what Jesus says next. Go declare the glorious. I think it's important to understand this is precisely what he tells them. And I want to make sure we understand the emphasis of the word glorious because there are some words here that really raised the intensity of this command, of this commission. Notice verse 15, would you? We're to go into all the world. This is what he told the disciples. There's not a place or a, or an, or a segment or a scope that's off limits. All the world. And we're to proclaim the gospel. I love this word. We're to declare. We're to preach. We're to, we're to boldly make known this good news. That's what gospel means. And you know that really clearly at First Family. So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say just go make some suggestions. He doesn't say go give a list of to-dos. There's nothing here except the the bold assertion that Christ has come, is alive, and this is good news, so go proclaim it everywhere. That's how he concludes it, to the whole creation. And so church, anything that has this kind of worldwide um, complete coverage and spread It has to be glorious. That's exactly what the gospel is. It's glorious. And this is exactly what they were to declare, the gospel. Now notice something here. This author, Mark, he he describes the commission here as proclaiming the gospel. I think the King James uses the word preach the gospel. He gets more of a verbal aspect. Matthew takes more of a developmental aspect. He says to We're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. But regardless of which aspect you see it, whatever perspective you bring, there's the sense of of reproducing what God's done in you in another, watching God do that. This idea of multiplying, of, of recruiting spiritually, of sharing the news, of telling others. There's just no way around it. Christ's last words involved sharing the gospel, both with our life and with our words. And this is why I think the simplest way to understand these two points is to see that he encouraged those disciples to stop doubting the obvious and start declaring the glorious. And by the way, this is exactly what they did. I love verse 20. Look at this with me. After the Lord ascended, they went out and preached everywhere. This is no doubt a reference to the book of Acts when that's what they did in Jerusalem and then it spread and it was the beginning of world evangelization and the gospel got to the known world because they went around preaching everywhere with their life and their lips. Now, I hope you're noticing something in verse 20 because it says that the Lord worked with them and confirmed his message with accompanying signs But previously it says that he had ascended. So what's going on here? I think what we have here is a beautifully subtle reference to the Trinity. In fact, look with me at 19 and 20. It says that Jesus ascended to God and then the Lord worked with the disciples. And I think the Lord there is just a a reference of the Holy Spirit's deity. And so let's understand something here and I love it when you find Trinitarian references in the scripture and they're all over the place by the way. But here's one regarding our mission. And it shows us that we not only stand on Trinitarian doctrine, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he also has given us a Trinitarian mission. God owns the mission, Christ has mandated the mission, and the Spirit empowers the mission. So all of that is centered around this understanding that we are to to stop doubting the obvious and start declaring the glorious. This is the mission that matters most. Now, while we're in the middle of these verses, I think it will be helpful to try to answer a couple of questions that I think you're probably having right now. There are about a couple of phrases that are difficult in this set of final six verses. They involve the phrase in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized. And they involve perhaps the phrase in verse 18 about taking up serpents and drinking poison. So can I address those with you? I think they matter in understanding really the mission at hand. About 1616, let's be clear. This verse does not teach baptismal regeneration or the thought or belief that you have to be baptized to be born again. It doesn't teach that. And here's why. I think there are two main reasons. One is, if you look at the text... Believing is connected to saving in the same way that not believing is connected to condemnation. So those are the connecting nouns and verbs, all right? Furthermore, the word baptized is in a passive voice. And so it really shows us the result of believing. So you believe, the result is you're baptized. In fact, the word saved is also in a passive voice. And so what you have here are the the two results of believing, believing you're saved and then believers get baptized. And the same thing is true for condemnation. It's the result of not believing. So I think grammatically, as well as you could say, maybe just logically, you could you could, you could begin to see this is not teaching that one has to be baptized to be saved, but rather it's simply teaching that baptism is the automatic, natural next step for those who do believe. Secondly, I'd say this, this is the only verse that those who believe in baptismal regeneration, this is the only one they can lean on. The whole of Scripture teaches the opposite, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And the clear examples of Scripture, such as in Acts 2, as well as the thief on the cross, man, they show that baptism is not a requirement, but it's the next step. So I just want to encourage you, when you see this, don't be cornered or threatened. Understand it to be a clear and Uh, teaching that salvation comes through belief, condemnation by not believing, and baptism is the next step. But let's not minimize the importance of baptism. This verse, I think, really highlights the the, um, great importance and urgency of baptism. And you know, around here, and you know personally, I think prompt baptism is a very scriptural pattern. So I would encourage some of you who are still waiting You're analyzing and you're debating. Why are you waiting? The next logical step that shows you are a believer, in fact, the first logical step that shows you're a believer, is baptism. I was thinking, in fact, this week about these two decisions here, these two uh, moments of, of action, belief and baptism, and thinking about our audience. And perhaps wherever you are listening or watching, Maybe one of these actions, one of these decisions needs to be made by you today. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you are removed from condemnation? You see, Jesus is alive. He has been raised. And thus, only Jesus can forgive sins. And he stands ready to forgive all who believe in his name. And he'll remove condemnation from you. And he'll give you salvation. If that's you this morning, man, I would urge you. I would pastorally beg you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But maybe there are those who are who are already saved and you know you're born again, but you've yet to be baptized. Oh, could I just kind of nudge you and push you? Could I put a knee in your spine for a minute and ask you, why are you waiting? Man, text us at our number on the screen, call us, let us know I'm ready to be baptized. And I was thinking this week, wouldn't it be great if when we regather finally, and who knows what date that'll be. But when we reconvene, what if on that first service back, what if at all of our services, we were just baptizing people that were ready to take the step of an invocation? Maybe lots of folks who, during this time of anxiety and confusion, man, had become Christians and believed in God. Wouldn't that be great if all of our services were just baptismal service on that first week back? Well, I don't know if that'll happen, but I'm telling you, I'm praying. And asking God to do amazing things in this time when there is a lot of uncertainty. I'm praying that the gospel will land on people and give them confidence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that those who believe and have yet to be baptized will do exactly that. So 1616 does not teach baptismal regeneration. But it does show the importance of baptism as the next step. The next verse that may prick your ears a little bit is this verse 18. In which these phrases about picking up serpents and drinking deadly poison. You know, they're they're kind of in the mix of other signs that are given, such as speaking in tongues, casting out demons, and healing others. Like, Todd, what's going on with that? Are those things that I've got to pursue and produce? And the answer to that is no. Let me see if I can walk you through just briefly what's happening here. I believe most technically, and I would even say textually, What's being referenced here are the things that would occur later in the book of Acts. In fact, did you know that every single one of these signs that accompanied the gospel for its confirmation and affirmation is recorded in the book of Acts except the one in verse 18 which says, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. There's no record of that occurring. And by the way, that's the only one with the word if in front of it in the verse. The other one's they all happen in the book of Acts. We see many of the apostles, of course, and the new believers speaking in those known languages at Pentecost, the new tongues described here. Uh, we see the apostles casting out demons in the book of Acts. We see Paul being bit by a serpent but not dying, and that being a confirmation of who he was and God's message, of course, in Acts 28. We see many people healed, they're recovering. So what you have here really is a... Is a um, a description of the book of Acts in his most textual and technical fashion. And why did that occur? Verse 20 explains it for us. Look at verse 20. These were done to confirm the message by accompanying signs. So consider this as well, and just kind of process this. Could it be that perhaps God sends these powerful, confirming signs in places and at times when the gospel's taking new territory? When the Lord is establishing a beachhead for his name in a certain area, and maybe there's been no access to the gospel or very little, and so to confirm the message being brought, to attest to its legitimacy, God gives supernatural, miraculous signs. that could be true. And That would lead me to say that I think that even happens today. So I'm not one to limit these to the book of Acts, but neither am I one to say that we should pursue and produce these. Here's our posture. Our posture is while we're on mission, we take the posture of faith and then God gives the power to affirm the message as he deems necessary. Ours is a posture of faith. His is the prerogative to provide the supernatural signs. You see, we avoid two ditches this way. One ditch is the ditch of fear. And we say, oh, these could never happen. I'm scared of those. And so we'll just say they're outlawed spiritually. The other is the ditch of force where you find people manufacturing the miraculous folks trying to produce them. But I think the real point of this section is we're given the mission in 15, and then the sense is, hey, just go preach the gospel without fear. Take the risk, and God will take care of you. This is really the point of these verses, and God will confirm his message through these signs as he deems necessary. Again, These aren't manufactured, but they are miraculous. So I would summarize by saying this. In 1616, we see the point is belief. And in 1618, we see the point is faith. And those are the postures that we're called to as believers. Interestingly, what you find is that even these two debated kind of verses, these difficult phrases they lean into the overall theme of the 12 verses, which is that we should stop doubting the obvious and start declaring the glorious. This is what Christ told the disciples. And so the the, uh, overwhelming theme here, which by the way, forms our stay-at-home truth, is that Jesus told them and he says to us today, stop doubting the obvious, start declaring the glorious. When you see this stay-at-home truth and you kind of tuck this away, I want you to understand Let's kind of back the truck up a bit. This is what comes out of the fourth reality. Remember the fourth reality of the resurrection? i would remind you again. It's that the mission matters most. And we see this in Mark 16, 9 through 20. Yes, there are two things he's asking them to do. Actually, he's commanding them to do. Stop doubting, start declaring. But all of those rest on this fourth reality, that the mission matters most. And this is so clear and evident in these final 12 verses that Christ is saying, orient your life around my mission. Let me speak to all of our teenagers at home with their families watching this morning, listening this morning. Is your life oriented around the mission of God? This is not saying that other things don't matter or are unimportant. I'm just trying to clarify what is most important. So man, run track, Dance, play soccer, work your jobs, have hobbies. Yes, but orient them around the mission of God. You see them and use them as avenues and platforms to to really further God's mission. Let's talk to our college students. Considering your career and your next steps, when you are very flexible and you can move anywhere in the world, how is the mission of God affecting your decisions coming up? Could it be that you could live somewhere strategically for God's mission? I know of a single lady in our church who's just out of college, and she's here for a few months, and then she's gone for a few months. And sometimes people say, where's so-and-so been? And and I remind them, well, she's on a mercy ship serving the mission of God for a few months. And she'll spend her time for a few months in an unreached area on a mercy ship as a nurse. Then she comes back, and she works here, raises money, and And saves money and attends here, is involved in a small group. And then she takes off for a few more months. She's orienting her life and her career around the mission of God. Let me speak to our families, whether you have young children, whether you have older kids, but to our couples and families. Is your family revolving around the mission of God and how you spend your money, your time, and how you put your kids to bed, how you wake them up in the morning, what you talk about, what you watch, where you go, your, your hobbies, your schedules. Your conversation, how much of it revolves, is oriented around the mission of God. You talk to your kids about their future, about how God's wired them and how they're made and how that can lean into God's passion for all nations. Let's speak to those who are perhaps in empty nesting stage or even those who are actually retired. Perhaps you have some discretionary time and other things. How is that being used for the mission of God? God employers, employees, business owners, church leaders, there's not a single category or group that's exempt from this question. How is your life, your business, your your pursuits, your schedules, how are all these things being oriented to the mission of God, which is the preaching of the gospel to every creature? Now, let me be quick to say something here. This is not about a call to ministry technically. Now, I believe that happens. I believe God calls certain people in a vocational way and sets them aside for special purposes, and I don't think that's unbiblical. I think it's legitimate. But this text is not about that. This text is to every single one of us about the mission of God that we're all called to. We're all called to orient our life around this mission that matters most, no matter how we make a living. So whether you're at principle, come and go, Bank of the West, uh, Ankeny High School, Methodist Hospital. Name your business, whether you own it or work in it. All of us are called to be on mission for God. Every single one of us. So church, let's do all we can to make disciples of all nations. Let's band together as Mark 16, 15 says. To preach the gospel to every creature. Growing up, that was the verse that was plastered above the platform in our church. In fact, it was done in both auditoriums. When I was younger, we were in one auditorium and it was plastered above the platform in big, bold wooden letters. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We then built another auditorium and Above that platform, bigger than ever, Mark 16, 15. And so, uh, growing up and looking back on that church, here's what I remember God's mission mattered most. Frankly, it permeated every single message, it was present in every ministry. Every person knew this was our aim, both locally and globally. And I'll spare you all the details. But suffice it to say, the mission of God was clearly front and center. With all of our flaws, all of our negatives, all of our positives, one thing we walked away knowing, God's mission matters most. It's my prayer and the aim that the people who spend time in this faith family Especially children and young people growing up in this spiritual family here will know without any hesitation at least one thing about First Family Church God's mission matters. And it matters most. It must permeate every ministry, it must permeate every member. It must be so evident that we never stray from this priority. Yes, like I said, other things matter. And we'll pursue those with with great heart and great passion. But they must be tied to and leaning upon that one mission that matters most, God's, getting the gospel to every nation, his passion for all peoples. In fact, every ladder in this place must lean against that wall. And so must every life. So know this about your pastor, First Family. If we are remembered for anything, may it be that we gave our life for God's mission, both here in Ankeny and around the world, that we did not doubt the obvious, but we declared the glorious reality that Jesus is alive, that we sacrificed, invested, worked, adjusted, forgave, deferred, conversed, changed, went, and were sent. We were all in for the glory of the one whose mission matters most, God. Let's pray together. Oh, great Heavenly Father, Lord of all creation, thank you that you came and you died and you were raised. And this is great news for all people. And Lord, would you inspire and motivate? Would you bring change and would you cause and stir within our hearts a continuing deep passion for your mission? That all people would know of the great name of Jesus Christ. Send us, Father, in your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.